I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 96. Psalm 96 will be our text this morning. Turn there with me. I'd like to begin by reading this psalm to you. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. And say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we peer into your word today, uh, that you would, uh, by means of your spirit, make your word come alive. Help us to see what it's saying to us. Help us to understand it. Bring conviction, bring encouragement, bring exhortation. And would you, Father, would you open our eyes this morning uh, that we might truly behold wonderful things from your law. Would your spirit have its way in us through the text of Scripture today, that we might be changed and transformed by its message, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What is the one thing that you can take to heaven with you? Or we might ask it another way. What's the one treasure you can invest in that will last eternally? When I think about that question, I think the only real answer we could say is people. People. Um, In fact, there's lots of things we can't do in heaven. We're not going to sin. We're not going to suffer. But we're also not going to evangelize. In fact, I've heard it said before that uh, everything else a believer can possibly do in this life that is godly, that is righteous, that is honoring to the Lord, we will do better in heaven. But there's one thing we will not do in heaven, and that is to evangelize. That's, that's why we're here. That's why at the moment of our conversion, God doesn't just immediately, uh, instantly sanctify us, instantly glorify us, and take us to heaven. So if that's the reason why we're here, let me ask you a question. How are you doing with evangelism? How are we doing as a church, as believers that are called to be witnesses to the gospel? As we read the pages of Scripture, we recognize that evangelism is not primarily an event, but it's a manner of living. And I think that may be why so many believers struggle with it. Evangelism, talking about our faith, talking about the Lord, is a way of life. It's not just an event, it's a way that we live. And I think that um, as believers, we can always be striving to understand that more, and, and how can we do evangelism better? How can we make it part of a culture of evangelism, what we're trying to do as the people of God, rather than just try to look at it as an event. As I wrestled with that idea of, of trying to make evangelism a, a cultural thing, something that we just do as, as believers, I came across this psalm. And this psalm, though it's part of the Old Testament, of course, I believe teaches us something that is crucial if we are going to be faithful witnesses of the gospel. What we see here is a key ingredient to the proclamation of our faith, to the the declaration of what it means to take the word of God and to tell the nations about it. And, And the theme of this psalm that I believe is so crucial to the issue of our proclamation and our evangelism, the theme of this psalm is worship. So here's my premise. 
What, what this psalm is going to show us is that when our life is gripped by worship, it is compelled by worship, it is focused on worship, we will not be able to keep our faith to ourselves. Worship leads to telling, or if you will, adoration leads to proclamation. So I invite you to look with me at Psalm 96 as we see this important link between adoration and proclamation. Uh, This psalm, interestingly enough, has a very particular context. In fact, uh, we won't do it right now, but if if you go back in your Bibles to Psalm, or excuse me, to 1 Chronicles 16, we see a portion of this psalm uh, filled out in a longer song back in that book. Um, The background is that uh, you'll remember in the book of 1 Samuel, the Israelites get defeated by the Philistines. Do you remember that? And and the Philistines said, what can we do to insult our enemies in the greatest possible way? Which is what enemies do when they defeat their enemies, right? And they said, what we're going to do, we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to take that, that special box that resided in the tabernacle that, that represented the visible presence of God. We're going to steal the box and we're going to take it off with us. And you remember that uh, story back from earlier portions of the Old Testament. Well, you remember how it happened. They, they put it in the house of their God, Dagon. Do you remember the story? They bring the box in and they come in the morning and what happens to Dagon? He's lying on his face. Well, how'd that happen, right? So they pick him back up and they, they go back and they go to sleep and they come back the next day. Well, he's on his face again. This time his hands are cut off, his head's cut off. We're like, what are we doing? Maybe we shouldn't have stolen the box, right? So they, they send it away and you, you remember how uh, it progresses and it eventually gets stored in the house of a man named Abinadab in a place called Kiriath Yarim. And, and, uh, uh, several of you have told me that uh, your church is planning a trip to Israel later this fall, and uh, my wife and I actually had the chance uh, just this past fall to visit Israel for the first time, and uh, we didn't realize it, but the, the bed and breakfast that we stayed in during our time in Israel was right at the foot of the hill of Abinadab's house. So we were right here in this location during our time there. And you'll remember that the, the tabernacle, res, or, or excuse me, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the holy box, resided there for 20 years until later on, David moves it back to Jerusalem. And on the occasion of the ark being returned to Jerusalem, the Israelites have a party. And as part of that celebration, uh, a portion of the, or a song is written, of which our psalm here in Psalm 96 is a portion. Uh, This psalm is a part of a longer song that commemorated the arrival of the ark in Jerusalem. But in God's providence, something happened later on that a part of that initial song got extracted and placed in the corporate worship songbook of the nation of Israel, what we know as the book of Psalms. In its present form, Psalm 96 serves as a regular call to worship. What this psalm is about, as you could tell just by reading it, it is about worship. Now, while we rightly recognize that that this is a hymn for the nation of Israel, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to eavesdrop on this worship hymn here. We're going to look over the shoulder of the Israelites, as it were, into their hymn book to, to try to glean what can we learn about worship for ourselves. And I want to especially draw your attention to the link that we see here between worship and proclamation. And, and you guys understand that that's largely how the Old Testament works, that we learn theology, we learn spiritual principles, we learn concepts that then allow the New Testament for us to make sense. And, and I think that's what we have here. This psalm is teaching us something crucial about our worship that gives us insight to how we are to be proclaiming and even evangelizing our faith, even in the church era today. So the title of the message today is From Adoration to Proclamation, and we will see in the three stanzas of this psalm the crucial connection between worship and evangelism, between adoration and proclamation. Let's look together at the first stanza we find in verses 1 to 6. We'll just call it Sing and Tell. Sing and tell. Uh, look at verses 1 and 2 with me, please. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. And right there we have to stop and say, wait a minute, there's something going on here. Right out of the gate, we have this threefold repetition. And, and, and you know with me, as, as we all understand our Bible, anytime the, the Bible repeats something, 
especially three times, we recognize that we're, going, we're supposed to stop, sort of pull the car over and say, we need to pay attention to this. And of course, you, make, you think of Isaiah 6, right? Holy, holy, holy. That's another example. So, so what is it that, that the psalmist wants us to see? The, the worship leader through this psalm is calling the congregation to worship. And he says, you need to sing, you need to sing, you need to sing. And we say, why singing? Well, singing is a unique form of expression, isn't it? You know, if an alien from another planet came here and they knew nothing about song or music and you were trying to describe it to him, what would you say? Music is so hard to explain. I mean, there's melody, there's harmony, there's emotion, there's memories, it draws things to your mind. Music is this wonderful gift from God and that's why he wants it to be a part of our worship. When we come together in a corporate uh, a setting or um, maybe uh, you know, si- uh, colleges sing their fight songs together, there, there's something about that that brings people together that particularly expresses allegiance and emotion. And that's why singing expresses normal, healthy Christianity, as we see in the New Testament in texts like Ephesians chapter 5. And, and that's why our psalmist begins saying, we need to sing to the Lord. We need to, to engage in worship in song, in this wonderful gift that God gave us. Now you'll notice, we're singing to, our Bible say here, the Lord. And, and you'll notice that the word Lord comes in all capital letters. I'm sure most of you are aware. That is signifying that, that great personal name of God that, that Shane alluded to in his prayer. The great I am that I am, uh, known as Yahweh. That's his personal name. This, this personal, uh, unique name of God. And that is the object, that, that is the person to whom the congregation is called to sing. And you'll notice, looking back at the text, the, the worship leader through this song is, is calling the people to sing a new song. Now, the, the phrase in Hebrew doesn't actually require that we're coming up with brand new music, although it certainly can mean that. But the phrase typically means, sing it again, sing it again, sing it again. Now, you know exactly what this is like, okay? Now, now be honest with me. When you're in your car and nobody else is around, and you're jamming to Pandora, you're drumming on the steering wheel, your iPod's on, and your favorite song comes on, what do you do? You hit repeat, right? And you listen to it over and over and over again. And that, that's what our psalm is getting at here, that what we're singing about, what we're, what we're declaring through this music is so important, it's so compelling, the psalm is saying, hit the repeat button and do it again, do it again, do it again. He calls on the congregation to engage in worship. But you notice also, this psalm does not just call on the people of God, the congregation, to engage in song toward the Lord. But look with me back at the text again. The psalm is calling all of the earth to join in singing to the Lord. And here we see something of the grand vision that this psalm represents. This psalm encapsulates what is the grand vision, the the grand theme of the whole Bible, and that is... Everyone, all of creation should stand and sing to this great God, to this great creator, to the King of kings, to the Lord of lords, to the great I am. That is the grand vision of this song. In fact, if you just look ahead in the text, notice it says um, in verse 1, sing to the Lord all the earth, right? Look down at verse 3. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds amongst all the peoples. You'll notice that. Look down at verse Uh, 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Verse 9, worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Verse 10, say among all the nations the Lord reigns and uh, he will judge the peoples with equity. Down to verse 11, let the heavens be glad, let the whole earth rejoice. Verse 13, before the Lord, for he is coming, he is coming to judge the earth, he will judge the world in righteousness and all the peoples with equity. Do you see the theme? All of creation, all the world, all the earth, all people stand up and join in song to this great God who made all things for himself. That is the grand theme of this psalm, and indeed, it is the, the, the glory of God in that is the grand theme of the scriptures themselves. Now, how is that going to happen? 
How is it that all of creation is going to see this great God for who he is and stand in song and rejoin in the chorus of song of praise to him? How will that happen? Well, look at verse 2. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds amongst the people. Now, you'll notice that little phrase there, proclaim good tidings. Um, Many of you know that uh, the Old Testament was originally written in the Hebrew language with a few portions in Aramaic, but then that Old Testament was translated into the Greek language and something that we call the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. And when that little phrase, proclaim good tidings, gets translated into the Greek language, it's the same word we see in our New Testament for evangelize. And there's the first hint of how worship feeds and fuels proclamation. Now, of course, at this time in Israel's history, they don't know the the full gospel, right? They don't understand all about Jesus Christ and his gospel as we do in the New Testament, but they do know the Messiah is coming. And they do have some sense of the fact that there is good news to come. Well, what this says is, that the people of God ought to proclaim good news. The, the content, the content of the good news, according to this verse, is his salvation. So why should all creation stand to sing? Because the Lord saves. Now David, who uh, likely wrote this song, or at least was involved in it, knew many experiences of personal deliverance, didn't he? Uh, He ran from Saul, you'll remember, who was trying to kill him. He had Goliath who was trying to kill him at other points, other enemies, other other challenges. Even later on in his life, one of his own sons, Absalom, uh, tried to kill him on several occasions. Uh, David was a man who, who truly knew of many dangers, toils, and snares throughout his life. And yet we, we understand from the context here as it's used in, this, in the psalm and even in the broader context of the book of Psalms that temporal salvation is not the only type of salvation that's being addressed. In fact, I think contextually what David is speaking about here is not temporal salvation so much as it is this grander salvation of how God saves people, not just from human enemies, but from the very sin and judgment and death itself. The salvation that he is speaking about here, and and really what he speaks of most often in the Psalms, is the salvation from sin. Now, of course, as New Testament Christians, we understand uh, the whole counsel of God, that the Messiah would come, that he would live a perfect life of righteousness, and then he would die a death, a substitutionary death on the cross to, to make a payment for sin so that God and sinners can be reconciled. And, and we know that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We knew that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that, he might become the, that we, we might become the righteousness of God in him. We know that wonderful verse that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so we as as the church have the full understanding of the gospel that is only alluded to and pointed to in this text. But do not miss the point. The, 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 the way that all of creation is going to come to sing to God, this grand vision that all the nations, all the people, and even, even the whole earth should stand and sing and praise to this great God is because of his great work of salvation. And that's what it's saying here. We need, as the people of God, need to be proclaiming the good news of salvation. And it's interesting also Um, how this psalm develops in terms of the identity of one of the characters. I I mentioned back in verse 1 that the psalmist is calling us to sing to Yahweh, to sing to him. But if you look down, look back at the very last verse of this psalm. Before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. Now, the people at this time likely didn't understand this in its fullest sense, but who do we know is coming back to judge the earth? It is the Lord Jesus, isn't it? So this psalm points to the coming Messiah and it ultimately recognizes Yahweh 
in the person and work of Jesus who will come back, as the New Testament tells us, to judge the earth. So you can see both in the salvation message that is given here, which points to the Messiah, and verse 13 that talks about God coming back to judge the earth, that in both of those senses, this psalm points to the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And that helps us so much because if we're going to proclaim his salvation among the nations, we do that in the fullest sense as New Testament Christians as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now now notice the content here. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. This is not something you do once in a while. It's day upon day, that, that iterative nature over and over and over we proclaim this. And not just his salvation, not just his works, but also notice with me, we also proclaim his character. Look at the next verse. Tell of his glory amongst the nations, his wonderful deeds among the people. His wonderful deeds um, speaks to his, his, again, his works, his glory, his radiance, his splendor, his character. And it says there from day to day, we do this all the time. We proclaim these things among the nations, among all people. Now, I want you to notice at this point two very important observations that we make from this point. The first is that the vision, the goal of all people, the vision, the goal, that the grand theme here is that all people everywhere would worship the Lord. That is the point. That is the end. That is the goal. And evangelism or proclamation is needed to bring that about. Do you see that connection? Uh, John Piper, in his wonderful book on missions, Uh, says that missions is not the goal. Worship is the goal. But missions exists because worship does not. It's a great quote. And and I would borrow that quote from Piper and change it slightly and apply it to evangelism too because I think it works. Evangelism is not the goal. Worship is the goal. But evangelism exists because worship does not. Do you see that? So we get out and we proclaim who God is, we proclaim his message of salvation, we proclaim his glory and his wonderful deeds and his wonderful works in hopes that people will repent and become worshipers of this great God. That's the first observation. But there's a second observation I want to show you in this section also, and that is this, that an expression of our worship, listen very closely, as an expression of a worship, even as an overflow of our worship, we are going to proclaim. That's what this psalm is helping us to see. When we're worshiping, when we're proclaiming, when we're walking with God, when we're um, engaging in worship and walking with Him daily and corporately, what will come as a, an um as a, an overflow of that process is proclamation. Regular, normal worship leads to regular, normal proclamation. And and that's the whole point of this psalm, is to see this connection. The point, the focus, is the connection between personal worship and personal proclamation. We might say it like this. Vertical expressions of worship lead to horizontal declarations of his greatness. That's the point of this psalm. Now, why is the Lord worthy of our praise? Why is he worthy of our worship and our song? Let's keep reading. Look at verse 4. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. You'll notice the little phrase there, all the gods of the peoples are idols. And of course, at the time this psalm was written, those are gods like Dagon, the the statue that kept falling down when the ark was there. And uh, later on, we think of a man like Elijah and and the prophets of Baal and that wonderful um, showdown in in 1 Kings. Do you remember that where fire is going to come down from heaven and and, uh, Elijah's over here and the prophets of Baal are over here and and uh, the prophets are, are praying to their gods, they're praying to the Asherah and the Baals, and, and, uh, and Elijah's over in the corner, and he says, um, maybe you need to shout louder, he can't hear you. Maybe he's in the restroom. Actually, it actually says that in the text there, uh, if you translate the, the Hebrew idiom correctly. 
Um, and then that wonderful moment where Elijah ste- steps up and he says, pour water on this fire, pour it on again, pour it on again, do it again. And then he prays to heaven and fire comes down and consumes the offering. And actually the text says that that fire that came from heaven was so hot, it not only consumed the, the, the water-soaked sacrifice, it actually consumed part of the rocks surrounding the altar itself. So Dagon, the Baals, people, uh, gods like that were what this psalm had in view in its original context. And, and of course, in cultures today, if you go to Cambodia or you go to Papua New Guinea or someplace like that, you will find false gods. You will find people worshiping Buddha or, or other uh, Hindu gods, things like that. But in 21st century America, though some of that idolatry exists... Today, most of our idolatry that we experience are not the overt idols, but what we call idols of the heart. We can think of today of all the creative ways that people come up with God replacements. And this is what Romans 1 tells us. You'll remember Romans 1 says that all people in our fallenness replace the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve the creature instead of the creator, right? You remember that verse. And so we make a God out of anything in life. We make God out of sports. We make gods out of friends. We make God, gods out of stats, uh, status or attention or control. I mean, think about that. You, you know how that goes. When, when you're like, I am, I'm going to be in control of my life. And, you, and people go through crazy things to try to micromanage this universe that are destined to fail because we are not the sovereign God of the universe. So we come up with these God replacements, these, these idols. Uh, I love what David Pallison says. He says, we, we turn God's good gifts into gods. They make wonderful gifts, but they make horrible gods because they were never designed to be gods. They were designed to be good gifts of this God that we would, we would worship the giver more than we, uh, uh, instead of worshiping the gift. But in our sin, we worship the gift over the giver. But notice, in contrast to these false gods, to these God replacements, notice it says here, but uh, the Lord made the heavens. And this reminds us that God, the true God of the Bible, is the creator who spoke all things into existence. And, And if you're like me, and you know that God is the creator, this is one of those phrases that we're likely to just read right over. And and I want to just encourage us to tap the brakes a little bit and and think about what that means. That God literally spoke every atom into existence in this universe. And he did it in six normal days. I mean, think about that on on an atomic level. There there are particles and forces and charges that that make up the, the very building blocks of all things. And they just do that. They just hold together in God's wonderful design. Think about mechanics like gravity and forces and friction and motion. I mean, aren't you glad you got up this morning and you didn't have to wonder if gravity was going to be in place and you go flying through your roof? I'm going to fly home this afternoon, and, and I'm going to get on the airplane, and I'm not going to think at all, gee, is this airplane going to fly? Are all the laws of, of motion going to be in place today so the airplane actually flies? You don't think about that. That just happens. Think about uh, electromagnet, uh, electromagnetism, things like light and heat and sound waves and x-rays, you know, uh, heat on a day that it's cold, sound so we can hear and enjoy things, x-rays so that when you break a, a bone, you don't have to go and they say, well, let's cut you open to see what's wrong. They can actually image Image your body, and all of those are gifts of God's good grace. Radio waves, so your cell phone works. Microwaves, so you can have instant popcorn. Wonderful things that God put into the universe. Think of the chemical systems of the body, how your body digests and uses glucose, or how the platelets and proteins in your body create a clot so that when you, you cut your, your foot you know, in the yard mowing, you don't bleed out. Think about human dynamics because we are, we are image bearers made in the, in the likeness of God that we can love and be loved, we can communicate, we enjoy relationships, we can think, we can design, we can build, we can create, we can laugh, we can run, we enjoy sports or cooking or hanging out with friends. And yet, what do we do with all that? The God who made the tree gets cut down and chiseled into an idol that somebody then worships. He creates the capacity for human relationships that someone pursues in place of a relationship with God himself. He creates the music that we were made, uh, that was given to us to, to glorify him that people use to exalt and proclaim wickedness and sin. 
He gives us thousands of good gifts of blessing, which we are regularly used to worship, as I said, the gift over the giver. All the gods of the peoples are idols, but friends, only the Lord made the heavens. Now notice with me, looking back at the text, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. He's saying the fame, the honor, the greatness, the ability of his name. These are all qualities of God that elicit worship. Can I ask you, are these things that you think about as you prepare for personal and corporate worship? His fame, his glory, his greatness, the wonder of his creative ability. Do you meditate upon and study and learn and read and inspect all these things? In the pages of Scripture, do you, do you see it in the creation? Do you see and reflect upon the majesty of His great character and name? You say, why is this so important? Why is the psalm emphasizing this so much? Listen very closely. Because your life is an engine for worship. But you have to fuel it. You have to feed it. And what is, we might ask the question, what is primarily fueling my life right now? This psalm, listen very closely, this psalm predicts what you will sing about. It predicts what you will worship. It predicts what you will love. What you will do, what you will worship, what you will love, what you will sing about is what you're fueling your life with. And if it isn't the character and nature and works and gospel message of this great God, we're probably not going to be worshiping him so well. And this psalm wants us to see with these these names here, the splendor, the majesty, the strength and beauty, that only our God is worthy of worship. Only the God of Scripture is worthy of our praise. Do you want to jumpstart your personal worship? Do you need to refocus and recharge in personal devotion this morning? If so, then meditate on these things. Great is the Lord. He is greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For he spoke and it was made. He commanded and it stood fast. He has majesty. He possesses strength. He alone possesses honor and glory and salvation. And when worship begins to ignite and glow and burn within you, this psalm tells us that you will have trouble keeping your God. God to yourself. That's the point. Now, watch this. Look at the second stanza of our psalm. The second stanza as we look ahead now to verses 7 to 10. We'll call this worship and announce. Worship and announce. Verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Now, worship is fueled by what we focus on. It's fed by what we meditate on. We, we just saw that. But notice, that's not all that is involved in the worship experience. It's not just what we focus on and think about There are other aspects that feed worship as well. Now look with me back at verse 7 to that little word, ascribe. You see that there? You notice it's repeated three times again that tells us, hey, we need to pay attention to that. What does that word mean? mean, That's not a word we use in normal conversation. Oh, hey, how's it going? What have you ascribed today? We we don't talk like that. That, That's a uniquely biblical word for the most part. But guys, it's, it's one of those words that if we don't understand what it means, we miss this key element of what feeds worship. Well, that word ascribe means to give credit, to give credit, to verbally express that God is the source of all good things. So if we read it again, kind of with that in mind, it's give credit to the Lord, O families of the people. Give credit to the Lord, glory and strength. Give credit to the Lord, the glory of his name. Do you see it now? He's calling on believers to give credit for who God is and to what he does. To, to verbally express that God is the source of all good things. Giving credit even more for his glory and strength, for the glory of his very name. We give credit not just for what God does or gives, but for who he is. 
the glory of his name, this text says. We, we give credit that there is no one like our God. All of the weightiness of his divine nature and character come into play here. His holiness, his mercy, his justice, his wisdom, his love, his eternality, his grace, and he's patient. And we draw attention to that and give him credit in that way. But notice with me, and guys, this is, this is so insightful. Notice with me, these, these commands here, these, these verses here tell us that these are verbal pursuits. True faith, being a true believer, being a true Christian, we recognize is intrinsically a verbal thing. Our faith is not a faith that we practice only inside of us. It must also be expressed outside of us. That's what this text is getting at. Through our words, through our songs, through our conversation and praise. And not just a little bit, he says, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord. Give credit, give credit, give credit. Because a healthy believer is one who regularly gives verbal credit to his God in all things. Now, I know what you're thinking, and I need to talk to the guys here, so ladies, just sit tight for a minute. I know what you're thinking, guys. You're thinking, but wait a minute, Keith. Um, I'm just not a very verbal guy. You know, I just don't talk so much. And, you know, the stereotype is, you know, the ladies, you know, they're 25 gusting to 30 with their words, and the guys, you know, maybe calm to two to three miles an hour when it comes to wordiness. At least that's what the stereotype says. But guys, if we think about this, if you're one of those guys that says, I'm not a very verbal guy, I hate to be the one to break this to you. Two words, sports center, sports center, okay? If you watch sports center, is this getting too personal? Sports center, you will watch men talk on and on, exhaustively, comprehensively, nauseatingly long about a game that happened a year ago. And they take it apart and they put it, and some, somehow they find something to talk about with that, with that game. In fact, I read a very interesting article uh, regarding uh, Fox Sports, the, the network, and the very interesting article, it said that only about 11 or, there's only about 11 or 12 minutes of actual content in a typical football game. Now, I read that article and I went, no, that can't be true, right? The math doesn't add up. So I, I read the article and, and looked over it, and believe it or not, there's only about 11 or 12 minutes of actual footage, the plays going on in a typical football game. So you say, well, what makes up for the other, you know, three hours and 20 minutes? Answer, Men talking. So seriously, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you are talkative or not, you understand this. We don't have a problem talking about things that we're interested in, typically. And even if you're a more a quiet person, you know what I found with quiet people? You get to know them. Maybe they're a little more comfortable one-on-one. You find what they really like, and they'll start, start talking about it. As we come to understand that this is not ultimately all about personality or whether you're quiet or, or yappy, you know, whatever your strengths and weaknesses lie, we understand that if the gospel requires it, if the Bible requires it, that we have sufficient grace through our union with Christ and through the process of sanctification that will actually overcome even the limits of our personality if God's word demands it. And this is one of those cases. God's word is demanding that we be verbal as believers, that we talk about our faith, we talk about our God, we give credit, we give credit, we give credit. Now at this point too, we have to talk about what I think is a danger that comes up. When we think about talking about our God, talking about our faith, it was something that Francis Schaeffer last century first talked about. He called it the public-private split. I think of it as a faith filter. Do you know what the faith filter is? The the faith filter goes like this. When you're here Sunday morning, you're talking to your Christian friends, you're talking about the Lord, oh, I had a great week in the Lord, I learned this in my Bible, and then you go to the office tomorrow, and the faith filter comes on, and you start editing out all the God stuff in your conversation. Do you struggle with this like I do sometimes? It's the faith filter. It's our culture that says, you can have your religion privately, Just don't bring it into the marketplace. Don't bring it into politics. Don't bring it to your work. Certainly don't bring it to your school. You can have it as a private thing, 
But it's not allowed. That religious discourse is not allowed in the culture. Do you feel this like I feel this? Can we see, just as brothers and sisters in Christ, if we can huddle up for a minute, that we cannot live by the faith filter rules. We cannot do that. We can't give in to that temptation to filter out our faith or filter out our ministry or filter out the gospel. Now, we don't want to be winsome. We want to be winsome and not brash, wise and not careless, but we need to start talking like God is really real and that he really deserves credit for every good and perfect gift that we enjoy. So, so maybe some real simple ways we can just think about how, how would we do that in a typical week. We might say something like this. Well, it's been a very hard week, but the Lord has been kind to me. By God's grace, I got that project done last week. What a beautiful day that the Lord has made. See, we, we don't have to go like, you know, theology 400 class with super spiritual things. It's just doing what the psalm says. Give God credit for who he is and what he does in your normal conversation in life. We think, too, that great text in Deuteronomy 6, the, the challenge for parents to teach their children when we sit down and when we rise up and when we walk on the way, parents and grandparents that are here, if we don't speak like God is real, guess what? Our children may grow up believing he is not. And as we continually and consciously credit the Lord for his attributes and achievements, we come before him in both personal and corporate worship. Notice looking back at the text, it says, bring an offering, come into his courts, worship the Lord in holy attire. Now, of course, that means something very specific in this context, because in the nation of Israel, corporate worship took place first around the tabernacle and then later on around the temple facilities. And as you know, looking at the Old Testament, offerings were brought to the worship service and offering, especially for, for the priests and for other significant people in that process, there was special clothing that was worn, and, and that's what's being alluded to here in the psalm. But in our day, as New Testament Christians living in the church era, we understand on the basis of a text like Romans 12, chapter, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that when we come to, to worship, we bring an offering of what? Our lives, right? Submit your whole life as an offering to God. Our, our time, our talents, our, our character, our money, our stuff, our families, our work. We present our whole life, everything that we have, as an act of worship. That's the, the New Testament uh, way that we understand how we come in giving offerings to worship. We don't come bringing bulls and goats anymore. Those were allusions to the once-for-all offering uh, that Christ offered when he offered himself We come to worship bringing the offering of our own lives, our own bodies in service and worship of him. That's what we see as an application in this psalm. We are to worship with our whole life. All that we are, we sing, we proclaim, we build our whole life around him. Now, notice again, what does worship lead to? Look at verse 9. Tremble before him, here it is, all the earth, say amongst the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established and it will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Now, notice we see the theme again, that worship leads to proclamation to the nations. As we see and as we experience the greatness and the glory of God in relationship with him, we will naturally desire for others to come to know him also. Now now notice, looking back at the text again, we're not called to just share information. We are called, the text tells us, to proclaim. We don't just inform, we call others to trust in and submit to the God of of the universe. Evangelism is not just informational, it is exhortational. Look at the text. Tremble before him all the earth. Why? Why should all the nations tremble before him? Why should they stand in awe of who he is? Because the text tells us he reigns. Our God reigns. He rules over his creation. It is established and it will not be moved to this very day our Lord reigns. And that's why the whole earth ought to tremble before him. We see that same uh, uh, reference there. Um, uh, to God reigning uh, in the text of Scripture there. Now, we think in the New Testament, uh, this same concept of, of trembling or being in awe of this great God. And one of my favorite stories is uh, when Jesus had been preaching, and a uh, you know, long day of preaching, and um, in his humanity, he got tired. And so he goes on this boat, the disciples are going to go to the other side, and where's Jesus? He's taking a nap, right? 
And this storm arises, and uh, these are experienced fishermen, but the storm arises, and apparently it was so bad, they start uh, fearing for their lives. They think they're going to die, this storm is so bad. And so they go, and they wake up Jesus, you know, don't you care? Come on, get up, do something. And then Jesus does this most amazing thing. He gets up, and he speaks to the weather, and it obeys him. And what's really interesting about that narrative is the disciples start off fearing for their lives that they might die in the storm, and then that fear morphs into a different fear. The the gospel writer tells us as they watch Jesus speak to the winds and the waves, and it obeyed him that the disciples were terribly frightened. You say, well, why are they scared? You know, previously they were scared because they thought they were going to die. Now they're scared. Now they're overwhelmed with fear because they recognize that this man sitting next to them is not just any man. This is, this is the king of kings and lord of lords. This is the creator of the universe. This is the one who, who speaks creation into existence and sustains it, as Hebrews 1 says, by the word of his power. And it freaked them out to be in that close a proximity to the Son of God Himself. That's something of what we see in our psalm when we hear tremble before Him all the earth as we recognize His greatness and His character and His mighty acts, especially His work of creation. People tremble before Him. Now notice, looking back at the text, not only should the nations tremble because the Lord reigns as the Creator, but notice... He is coming as the judge. He will judge, the text tells us, the peoples with equity. And that that introduces for us the last stanza and the last section I want to show you today, verses 11 to 13, anticipate and prepare. Anticipate and prepare. Not only do all the nations tremble before God as creator, but he's coming again. And this time he's coming to judge. Look at verses, verses 11 and following. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. This is the verse where we see that it's pointing to something that we learn in a fuller sense in the New Testament to the Messiah coming coming back, not in his first coming, but in his second coming to judge the living and the dead. And that's what's alluded to here by the psalm. Now, as believers, the coming of the return of the Lord to judge the world elicits two responses, according to this text. First, notice, it elicits a response of excitement. The psalmist says he can't wait for God to come back. In fact, the believer is so excited about the coming of the Lord, he calls upon all creation to rejoice and exalt with him at the prospect of his arrival. Just read it again. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. And we ask the question, what does a happy heaven look like? You know? What does that mean? What does it mean that trees sing? That's what the text says. All of creation looks forward to the coming return of the Messiah. And that should make us think, as New Testament believers, that should make us think of Romans chapter 8, shouldn't it? That the creation was subjected to futility. Remember that back in Genesis chapter 3? The whole creation is subjected to futility because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And that's why creation is in bondage. And Paul tells us in Romans, it, the whole creation actually groans looking forward to the day when all of creation will be free when the Messiah returns. And that's the excitement that the psalmist is calling upon all creation. Your Messiah is coming and when he comes, creation will be free once again. That's why all of creation stands and anticipates with excitement the joy of the Lord's second coming, because they will be set free from bondage. But notice in this text that when the believer thinks about the coming back of the Messiah, the coming back of Jesus, it's not all excitement in our response. There's a second response we see here at the end of verse 13. 
He will judge the people. He is coming to judge the earth. The Lord is coming. He's coming to bring justice. He's coming to right every wrong, to, to bring justice, to punish the evildoers, and to free the righteous. And believers rejoice in God's righteous and holy judgment that will finally bring justice to this wicked and perverse world. But that is not the emphasis of this very last stanza. You say, how do we know that is not the tone, that is not the emphasis? Because something happens in the poetry that actually helps us to know how to interpret this last verse. Now, this is one of those things where we lose it in translation. Uh, uh, the Hebrew professor that Shane and I had at uh, Master's Seminary liked to quote this old rabbi who used to say, reading your Bible in translation is like kissing your bride through a veil. You remember that one? And, and we lose something of the translation here. Now, you guys understand, the book of Psalms is actually a book of songs, right? S-O-N-G-S. And it's in poetry, much like many of our songs are today. And poetry in Hebrew has meter, it has rhyme, it, it has structure to it. The problem is, when we translate Hebrew poetry of the Psalms into English, we miss a lot of the nuances, Well, you can't see it, but thus far our psalm has been written down in poetry in a a normal meter. We might think of it as a major key, musically speaking. It's a happy psalm, right? It's about praise and worship and honor. And yet the psalmist does something in this very last line that shocks us. And it helps us to see how we are to take this last phrase. He changes the meter to a meter of lament. If you will, he goes from a major key to a minor key. And that changes the whole tone and the emotion of this last line. So so look at the last line again and let's read it with a somber, sobering sort of minor tone again, okay? He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with faithfulness. We say, well, why should we take that in a minor key? Why is that a lament? Well, think about what the psalm about is about. The whole summation of this psalm is a call for all the earth to join God's people in worship, in song, in devotion, in dependence, in submission to him. And as a reminder that the Lord is to return, the psalm goes to a minor key. Why? Because the clock is ticking. Because the clock is ticking. There is coming a time when Jesus will come back and time is of the essence. Why? Because we have work to do. There are souls that must be happy or miserable forever. And that time frame, that that minor key, the, the lament feel that goes here, the Messiah is coming back, he's coming to judge and we have a job to do. We have a job of evangelism. We have a job of proclamation. This, this last line motivates us out of our spiritual complacency into gospel action. The soberness helps us to see that the clock is ticking and we have a faith to proclaim. All peoples of all nations of all the earth must hear. Why? Because he is coming back, he is coming to judge, and people need to hear. So I ask you again. How's your evangelism? Do you see, guys, the the big idea of this psalm that vertical expressions of worship are what lead to horizontal proclamations of of his greatness? Or we might think of it as evangelistic proclamation is primarily fueled by active personal worship. So if you're here this morning and you feel like maybe you have an evangelism disorder, chances are you really have a worship disorder. That's the point of this psalm. So how's your worship? We will not be a people who thrive in evangelism and proclamation until we are a people who are at first thriving in worship. Let's take that to heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful psalm that connects two things that we don't typically think about, our personal worship and our proclamation of our faith. Lord, might we come to you in times of song and devotion and adoration and and study and, and sitting at your feet each day with the text of Scripture in front of us, reading and meditating and studying, and and that our worship would grow and, and thrive and be healthy. And we know that when we do that, we will have great difficulty keeping our God to ourselves. 
Father, the clock is ticking. This psalm ends on a sobering note, and so we know what our task is. Might we seek you with passion and worship, and as we, knew, we do, we know that that will spill over into natural, normal proclamation, declaration, conversation about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and about the glory of our great God. We pray in his name. Amen.